0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Why Bother with your host, John Sabluski, the podcast that didn't need to be made by the host who really didn't want to make it. Today, I am very honored to have my guest here. I am very, very excited to have her because if you've seen the musical Come From Away, you already know a little bit about her story. Uh, Due to some technical mishaps today, we're unable to see her live with us, but her audio is here so i'm very excited to introduce my guest today captain beverly bass hi beverly how you doing today hi john thanks so much for having me on i am so excited that you are able to be here you know i've been talking to my friends uh for days about <laughs> uh how i'm gonna to get to talk with you and i i, I think that this is uh gonna be a lot of fun i'm really excited Good deal. So why don't we start out a little bit about talking about you growing up uh, and and what exactly drew you to wanting to be an airline pilot?
1: Well, you know, that's one of the hardest questions for me to answer because I honestly don't know exactly what it was that uh, drew me to that fascination with airplanes. My parents would tell you that they don't remember a time in my life that I wasn't obsessed with flying on airplanes and just watching them in the sky. My mother would even tell you that when she would push me in a stroller, if an airplane would go over, I'd start kicking my feet and everything. And I guess the earliest time for me was when I was about, um, I don't know, in grade school, and I would beg my aunt to take me out to the airport. And back then you could park really close to the runway and there would be a chain link fence And every night at nine o'clock, National Airlines had a 727 that flew into Fort Myers from Tampa. I was raised in Fort Myers. And I would sit in the car and then I'd get out and stand by the fence and pick up its landing lights on its descent. And I would watch that airplane land. And I can remember thinking at the time that those pilots had the coolest job in the whole world. And someday, I'm going to do that. So I announced to my parents when I was very young that I was going to be a pilot. Didn't know that I could fly for the airlines because obviously there weren't any female airline pilots back in those days. So I didn't have anyone to look up to or certainly uh, not anyone to mentor me through that process.
0: Oh my goodness. So you know, somebody that wants to be a pilot, obviously you had probably had some experience being on an airplane growing up, right? Uh, do you remember the first time you actually stepped foot on an airplane?
1: I don't remember the exact time, but my mother was from New York City, so we flew from Fort Myers to New York often to see her family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we didn't have jet bridges or anything. You always had to walk out on the, the ramp area and walk up the stairs and I just remember just being overwhelmed with excitement. I loved everything about it. I mean, even the smell of walking onto the airplane and smelling, you know, the fuel and everything before you get on. And I, I, I just, I loved it. And of course, I always wanted to sit by the window and look out and see how tiny everything became as we climbed out. So it, it was a lifelong fascination. It truly was.
0: That is so cool because you know for me it's the complete opposite. I had I'm I'm almost thirty years old. I had never been on an airplane until 2018 uh, when I <laughs> when I went to uh, New Orleans, uh, Louisiana, and uh, I, I, I I will never forget this story. We get onto the airplane in at the Buffalo International Airport. Oh yes, get onto the airplane. And, uh, and I'm like, you know, they're always delayed We're I got some more time to think about this. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, and we get on and we go onto the tarmac and, uh, the cap or the, the, the stewardess says, and we've been cleared for takeoff. I'm like, of course we have. And next day I know I'm at like an 85 degree angle being jettisoned into the sky.
1: <laughs> oh, it's, the, it's the ride of a lifetime. Oh,
0: it, day. it definitely was. <laughs> And my, my friends, when I was going on this, and I said, oh, I'm really nervous, really nervous. They said, John, whatever happens, don't worry. The plane will land on the ground. And I said, well, wait a minute.
1: <laughs> oh, oh, my gosh. Oh, I can't believe you were that old. That's amazing.
0: It is. And I haven't been on one since. But it's not mm-hmm. that I don't want to. Yeah. There just hasn't been an opportunity yet. So, sure. <laughs> So you you decide you, you you take on this fascination of wanting to become a, a pilot, and I would imagine that it's no easy feat to do, go through the training and to do this. So could you explain a little bit about the process uh, through flight uh, flight lessons and how you actually go about becoming a pilot and getting that experience to do that job?
1: Right, sure. Um, I was actually sixteen when I went to my dad and asked him if I could take flying lessons. And he wouldn't let me. And it wasn't that he wasn't supportive of what I wanted to do. But we were very involved in showing quarter horses. And uh, I'm an only child. So it was a family of three. My mom and dad and I uh, managed the ranch and, you know, went to all the horse shows together. Mm -hmm. And he knew that keeping me interested in horses was so much work that it kept me away from boys, drugs, and parties. <laughs> so he didn't want me to lose interest in the horse operation. So I didn't get to start flying when I wanted to. Then I left for college in 1970 to go to TCU in Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. And it was that first summer home uh, back in Fort Myers, that I said, okay, that's it. I got in my car and I drove to the local airport signed up for flight lessons, took my first lesson. And in fact, that instructor is still still alive today, if you can imagine, because that was 50 years ago.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: um, I came home from that lesson, walked into the house, and announced to my parents that I would fly for the rest of my life, which really proved to be true because I still – have a flying job today and I'm 68. So, yeah. Um, so the process, it is a very, uh, I hate to use the word difficult, but it is difficult at times. But when you love what you are doing so much, you're willing to take on the adversity or the difficult times of getting to to the end goal. So I started flying um I did most of my flying in Texas Mm -hmm. and I got my private license, commercial instrument, multi-engine rating. And then I got my first job. And that's what is so all important in the civilian world of flying is civilians pay so much money to fly unless they get scholarships or stuff. And I didn't even know about scholarships back then. But if you're not in the military, which now is open to women, which it wasn't in my day, Mm -hmm. um, you are so happy to get your first flying job because for the first time, not only are you able to log those hours, which you need thousands of hours to get hired by the airlines, but you're also getting paid. So it's the best of both worlds. So my first flying job was flying for a mortician and he kept his, uh, he was a mortician in Fort Worth and he kept his uh, single engine airplane at our flight school. And so we would transport one body at a time. The airplane was actually so small that you couldn't fit a casket in. Um, so the oh. body was just on a stretcher. Oh no. <laughs> and they took the two back seats out, and the right front seat was folded down. So when I would step into my pilot seat, which is on the left, I had to step over their head to get to my seat. And then, um, you know, I would either deliver them to their family in whatever town their family was in, or I would pick up a body and bring it to Fort Worth. But it was one body at a time. And I did that for a couple of years and probably logged about 400 hours of flight time. Um, I also flight instructed, I was chief pilot of a charter department. And then I flew for two corporations out of Fort Worth. And then my last job before getting hired by American was flying night freight out of Dallas Love Field. I flew airplane parts for Rockwell, mm-hmm. and photomat film and canceled checks. You know, back then, um, we transported canceled checks all over the country, which I'm sure they don't even do that today. <laughs> but, but yeah, I flew five nights a week from nine at night till three in the morning. And that's, that's really when the freight dogs, as we call ourselves, that's when we operate is in the middle of the night so that everybody has what they need for the next morning. And so about five to six years later, I had several thousand hours and was in a position to apply to american so that was that was how it started for me
0: that is awesome so you know like like for most people, when you're looking for a, a position in a company or something, you look at the, the classifieds uh, and, and you, just, you just, you know, call or send them a resume. So how does getting a job as a pilot, like, is, is there like a, uh, is there a publication? Is it in the know? Do you need to know somebody to get this opportunity? How, how does that happen?
1: Well, today being very different than it was in my day, you know, in my day, it was really word of mouth. I mean, you knew the people at the airports and you knew the people who were, you know, needing pilots. And it was just, um, you know, basically you counted on your friends to help you with getting new jobs. But today, obviously, because of social media, yes, we have Facebook pages, we have LinkedIn, we have all kinds of sources. I could log on right now and say, you know, who's looking for a pilot to fly a global global express in the Miami area and, mm-hmm. and numerous jobs would come up. So so it's really such an advantage to have access to to the internet that we have today. And mm-hmm certainly didn't 50 years ago
0: <laughs> that, that's that's very interesting because i'm thinking like we used to joke when i was little i told my mom i wanted to be a train engineer uh-huh. uh, and uh, and she's like well it's not like they're just going to have you show up one day and give you the keys and say well there you go <laughs> good luck <laughs> right, right. it doesn't work like that but that's that's really cool so uh you know you were you finally do get your job uh, working with uh, American Airlines, and uh, and you start off as a flight engineer, according to your storybook and according to the show. Uh, so, what exactly does the flight engineer have to do, and how many more seats did you have to work up into to get the the captain status from that well, point?
1: Back in the seventies, most of the commercial airplanes were three pilot airplanes, not all, but most. Mm -hmm. And so we are hired as pilots, but your first position is just what you said. You start out as a flight engineer. And um, since you didn't start flying until 2018, you might know (laughs) this, Uh, (laughs) but when you walk onto the airplane as a passenger and you look in the cockpit, the flight engineer kind of sat at, Sat behind the two pilots, mm-hmm. and and more specifically behind the co-pilot or first officer, mm-hmm. and they basically managed all the systems: the hydraulics, the pneumatics, the fuel system, the electrical system. And now, because of our airplanes being so computerized, all of those systems have been incorporated either in the overhead or you know we have circuit breakers certainly behind the pilots and down by your right leg or your right and left leg sometimes but everything has been uh managed now in the digital world you know we have glass cockpits with screens and computers and you know but back in back in the day it was all round dials and the flight engineer managed the systems and then everything is based on seniority. So when you get hired with the airlines, your seniority number is your lifeline. It's, it's how you bid your monthly schedule. It's the, uh, what you use to bid your vacation, the seat that you fly, the airplane that you fly. So basically, if you think of a 727, you start as a flight engineer. I then uh, moved up to co-pilot and then eventually captain. And, you know, depending on if it's a wide body flying international, some, some people who can be a captain on a narrow body airplane Mm -hmm. might opt to be a co-pilot on a wide body flying international simply because the schedule is better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everybody has uh, different priorities. Some people want to work during the week and be off on the weekends. If you don't have a family. It's kind of nice to fly on the weekends when your seniority number dictates everything about your schedule and everything about your airplane and your pay and your life. So you live and die by your seniority number. So (laughs) I I was a flight engineer for five years, a co-pilot for five years, and then 10 years minus one day, I became a captain for American.
0: Very cool. So you become a captain. Uh, and and you are the first female captain for American Airlines, and with that uh, that position on that day, did you ever think, "Wow, I I'm a role model a bit, and I have a responsibility now to to young ladies and women uh, who want to follow in my footsteps." Did that ever come through your mind?
1: You know, it didn't happen early on. It has happened more so. Um, later in my life, I now realize that more than ever, certainly um, because of the interest in the show, Come From Away, the musical. But back then, it was quite daunting being the first female captain. I thought I was just going to be like one of the guys going through training. I had, I had no idea that they were going to pay so much attention to me. Everything was focused on me. You go through with a partner. My poor partner didn't even have a name. He was always Beverly's partner. And, you know, when we were with a group of people, I always made sure to introduce him and everything because everything was focused on me. And and that can be um, great unless you don't have a good day in training or a good day in the simulators and everybody knows every mistake that you've made. So it kind of follows you. I'm not sure that I was totally prepared for all the attention. Um, when I flew my first trip, they had news people on the airplane. Every place I landed, there were news people. And I, I never expected that. I really didn't. And, you know, it was very important for me to do a great job because I think was in a position really to set the standard for female captains at my airline. And I didn't want to let anybody down. I didn't want to fail in any way. So mm-hmm. I uh, I took that role on and hopefully I was very successful.
0: Well, I, I have to tell you, I um, as I get older and as an educator, I learn more and more about stories that I didn't know about growing up. And I'm always fascinated about these people, uh, these pioneers, uh, people like yourself, who had such a impactful uh, part of history. Yet we don't really know much about them until we do know about them. And I I, and I I just wonder why we don't put a little bit more emphasis on the people that are doing the awesome things and setting the standard and setting the path for others. Uh, I, I just always find that fascinating that we. Uh, it's it's not a big deal until it's a big deal and well,
1: I, I don't think we recognize it in the moment it's mm-hmm. later like the guys used to say to me do you realize you are a pioneer and I I used to say no I, I really don't think of myself like that maybe when I'm 50 i'll I'll feel that way well you know what I turned 50 and I still didn't feel that way you know I just was a pilot doing my job. I wasn't trying to, um, you know, break any records. I wasn't trying to be the first of this, the first of that. But again, seniority dictates what you do. So Mm -hmm. seniority wise, it just worked out where I was the first female captain, you know, to go to training. There were two girls senior to me who could have done it, but um, you know, for various reasons, they just didn't. So, so, you know, Here, here it is. I wasn't trying to do that.
0: (laughs) So, you know, you become this captain, and then you become a founding member of the International Society of Women Airline Pilots. And how is it to meet other women who may or may not have known about you, but who are following uh, in a position that you have? Uh, What type of, uh, you know, Maybe life-changing thought process is there, knowing that there are all these women now that have jobs like you. Uh, you started with as a captain and, and moving forward. And you've just, it's just so much grander. I mean, I, I would imagine that's a huge honor and excitement, and just seeing your industry uh open up through that.
1: Right. Well, let me tell you a little bit about how. Um, ISA, the International Society of Women Airline Pilots, came about. I was actually based in New York at the time. I lived in New York City on the Upper East Side. And uh, I had to take a bus to go to the airport for work. And one day I was in the bus terminal, and one of the workers there said, you know, there's another female pilot that rides the bus. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you're kidding. There is another one like me? <laughs> There's another one, and so I gave him my phone number, and I said, oh, if you ever see her, please have her call me. So, you know, about a month went by, and lo and behold, she called me. Now, this is the most ironic thing in the world, and you would only understand this if you understand what it's like living in New York City. We were the only two female airline pilots in 1977 living in New York City. And we lived in the same apartment building. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that is just so unbelievable. So obviously we became instant friends. We lunched together every week. And during one of those lunches, we said, gosh, wouldn't it be so much fun to meet the other girls? Because there were so few of us at the time. I think... Oh, in 1977, maybe, maybe there were 40 or maybe 40. Um, And in 1978, I think somewhere between 40 and 50. So we pounded out a letter on a manual typewriter. Imagine manual typewriter, still have the letter. (laughs) We sent it to every chief pilot of every airline that we knew had female pilots. And remember, we only know because we've read a newspaper article or something like that. I mean, we have no way to get in touch with each other. Mm -hmm. And So when we sent the letter, we didn't even know if the chief pilot would distribute it to his female pilots. Mm -hmm. But we had our first convention in Las Vegas in May of 1978, and 21 women showed up. So... Um, you know, almost half of the women in the U.S. at that time. So we were pretty proud of that. And it was just so interesting learning about the backgrounds of each person and what kind of flying they had done. One gal flew the bush in Alaska for five years. She was the only female pilot in Alaska flying the bush. One wow. gal flew Uh, animals in a C-46 to Bombay. I mean, it's like, oh, my God, I didn't do anything. I just flew dead bodies, you know. So so it's really fun learning about all the gals. And, you know, our organization is still going strong today. Uh, We have many, many new members from the newer generation, the gals of today, And obviously that now involves uh, women who have been in the military. Um, Those of us in the beginning didn't have that opportunity. They didn't, the Navy took its first female pilots in 73 and the Air Force in 76. And I think the Air Force Academy graduated their first class of women cadets, I believe in 1980. you know, so so gals can fly anything today, which is great. And of course, we're just in awe of them because we all had to come up the civilian route. Sure. And it's like if somebody gave me the opportunity to strap an F-18 on my back right now, I'd sign up for right. Now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so so they have varied backgrounds, which is awesome. And I think the younger generation does have quite a bit of admiration for those of us who who sort of what they would say paved the way for them. And, Mm -hmm. And hopefully we paved a very nice path.
0: Well, I, I have to tell you, I, I am fascinated, and uh, and we're going to talk about your book in a little while. But I, I was reading in the back; you have there's some uh, write ups about different things that you're a part of and you've done, and I was just like, more people need to know about this. This is just, just <laughs> completely fascinating to me, and uh, and and I'm going to make it my mission to to inform as many as I can.
1: Oh, good for you. <laughs> well,
0: thanks. Uh, all right, so now we're we, we we've had we've had some fun, but you know, I, I'm interested in this now. I'd like to talk a little bit about September 11th um, and uh, you know, anybody who was alive on September 11th, uh, I was in fifth grade. Um, anybody who was alive. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Hey, I still, I, I still feel crazy when I hear that like SpongeBob SquarePants came out like 15 years ago. So it's uh you know, but um Oh, Siri, stop it. Okay. Uh, So so September 11th, uh, can we talk a little bit about that day, uh, how you found out about what had happened, and uh, what steps you had to take uh, as a pilot and the captain of that plane to make sure everybody was safe?
1: Well, I was actually on a three-day trip. I flew from Dallas to Paris, France. And uh, of course, we laid over there, went out and had a lovely dinner. The crew usually goes out to dinner. And then the next morning, when we were getting ready to leave to fly back to Dallas, I actually got a call from flight ops. And they informed me that my inbound equipment, uh, all the airplanes leaving the US, they leave in the evening, and then they arrive in Europe in the morning. And then those are the airplanes that we fly back to the US in the morning or midday. So they advised me that my inbound equipment was going to be about an hour and a half late which is normally not significant but on that day it 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 had significance so anyway we go to the airport and now we're headed to dallas westbound over the north atlantic and it's just it's one of those magnificent days you rarely cross the atlantic where it's clear the whole way i mean that's almost unheard of Mm -hmm. and that day It was one of those days. It was just majestically clear, not a cloud in the sky. And so the co-pilot and I were eating lunch and I was an instructor on the triple seven. So it was his first trip on the airplane. So it's a teaching flight and, uh, excuse me. So we, uh, on international flights, when you're over international waters, uh, all airplanes have to monitor a frequency, and it's, um, it's a frequency that we don't talk to air traffic control on, but we are able to talk to each other. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we might tell each other about good rides, bad rides, weather up ahead or whatever. So that day, an airplane in front of us came on the, that frequency and said, an airplane has hit the World Trade Center. And, you know, so my first officer and I kind of talked about it and we just we knew the weather was great in New York. So we couldn't imagine what happened. But like many people, we assumed it was a small airplane. And not that that's not tragic, but, you know, it would have never even crossed our minds that it was an airliner. Mm -hmm. So then about 20 minutes later, that same pilot came on and said, The second tower had been hit, and with that came the words, by an airliner and terrorism. And honestly, I I was so naive. I, I didn't even know what they meant by terrorism because, I mean, I thought that was something that happened on the other side of the world. You know, what does that even mean, terrorism? And... And of course airliner, you know, we're all sitting there thinking, oh my God, whose airplane was it? And, you know, um, when a tragedy like that happens within the airline world, in any kind of accident, it doesn't matter what airline you fly for, we -hmm. become a very tight knit, small, close family. So as we proceeded westbound, you don't really come into contact with air traffic control until you reach 50 degrees West longitude. And so they said, um, Oh, I guess, let me back up just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, We learned that New York's airspace was closed, which didn't really affect us because we fly a great circle route from Paris to Dallas. So we come in way over Northern Canada, down through Chicago and then um, Dallas and So it was not a big deal to us that they closed New York. Then shortly after that, they said, all of the U.S. airspace is closed. Okay, that is a game changer because we now know that we're gonna divert and it's gonna be somewhere in Canada. Well, the logical cities would be Toronto, Montreal, Calgary, Edmonton, you know. So we start plugging those into the computer. And then as we approach 50 degrees west, Uh, which is where we do come in contact with Gander Control, they called us and said American 49 Land Your Airplane immediately in Gander. Well, as airline pilots, we don't get orders. That is very abnormal. Mm -hmm. If we're going to divert one of our big international airplanes, I can assure you that it is coordinated with our dispatchers, with our company. It is ultimately the captain's decision but you coordinated. That day, it was a direct order. So we programmed our computer for landing in Gander, and it showed that I was gonna be 7,000 pounds over my max landing weight, which is not a real big deal because you can land the airplane overweight. Structurally, it can handle it. Mm -hmm. But if you opt to do that, you have to have a very specific uh, inspection done by maintenance personnel who are specifically qualified to do that inspection. And so I I didn't know how much fuel was available. I didn't know how long I was gonna be in Gander. So I had to wrestle with, do I hang on to what could be precious fuel and take the overweight landing? Or do I jettison 7,000 pounds and get down to my max landing? And then I don't have to have the inspection. I opted to jettison the fuel. So they sent me out over the Atlantic. We dumped 7,000 pounds. And then I was on a about a 90-mile final for runway 22 2-2 in Gander. A normal final approach is about 15 miles out. Mm-hmm. So ours was really long. Um, I was 36 out of 38 wide bodies to touch down in Gander in a three-hour time frame. We showed up unannounced and the population in Gander at that time was 9,400 people and we were 6,700 passengers and crew. Wow. And the reason I mentioned the delay of my airplane inbound to Paris that morning is if I had departed on time, I would have never landed in Gander. Wow. So it was because of my hour and a half delay that yeah. it put me in Gander. After the tragedy happened,
0: wow, that is that is such a, I, I can't even wrap my head around that. And and you know it's 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 interesting too because you never think. I mean, most people, uh, most civilians would get on an airplane and it's going to go where I paid for my ticket to take me. You know? <laughs>
1: right, right. I'm
0: not I'm not going unless there's a weather thing or so. so. When you now, I'm just interested in this. When you have to jettison fuel. Does the, do the passengers know that's happening, or is that just something that you can do without anybody noticing? Or
1: um, A lot of people wouldn't notice, but I made an announcement. So if they saw the fuel coming out of the dump nozzles, which are on the wing, um, mm-hmm. they wouldn't be alarmed. And the fuel evaporates before it hits the ground. But, sure. um, but yeah, I wanted them to know what we were doing.
0: Sure. sure. So now uh, you the plane lands in Gander. Uh, and there, you were number 36 out of 38. There's a great song in the show. I think it's the second <laughs> song, 38 Planes. Yeah. I actually found a picture um, online. Yeah, of, there we are. <laughs> there's the Gander Airport. And now, could we talk a little bit about the the importance of this airport? Now, it didn't necessarily have a significance in two thousand. Uh, one as a normal functioning airport, and the reason behind that, it's my understanding, is because the jet engine that was uh, created allowed the plane to make it across the Atlantic without needing to refuel. Is that is that correct?
1: Yes, actually, the airport was built by our State Department for the European Theater World War II mm-hmm. so it was a launching point to get our airplanes over to Europe, and one of the last refueling stops. So. The airport is actually uh, quite nice. They have great runways, they're long, and they can accommodate a lot of airplanes. The terminal itself uh, looks like 1950s vintage. I always say it looks like George Jets- Jetson's house. <laughs> you know, It has lime green and orange furniture and the furniture is r- very low to the ground. Um, But yeah, you know, I wouldn't want them to change it because it's just such a special place. (laughs) um, Yeah, so the uh, airport is used to accommodating a lot of airplanes, but never in its history has it had 38 wide-body jets on the ground. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you, when we were on final approach and just about to touch down, there's a, a road that runs perpendicular to the runway. There were cars parked on both sides of the road as far as I could possibly see. And, and I remember thinking, it looks like everybody in Newfoundland is here and they had come out because they heard what was going on. They knew there was major chaos at the airport and everybody drove from wherever they lived in Newfoundland to see this. And so when we touched down, we had been flying for seven hours and, we got the airplane parked and they came on the canadian officials came on and and told us that we would not be getting off until the next day so when we got off the airplane we had been in it for 28 hours
0: wow that's i i would have been having major anxiety about being i
1: mean no, the, the, you know, it was john it was actually not bad because airplane holds 247. I had 156 passengers. So there was room to move around. The -hmm. weather was so gorgeous that we were able to open the aircraft doors and put the barrier straps up. And so people were able to look out, you know, I invited them up to the cockpit and really my passengers were, were great. They were great.
0: That's wonderful. So now A situation I know that they talk about in the musical is some pilots uh, were very reluctant to mention what was happening uh, to the passengers because they didn't want a uh, what I would assume to be a panic, Um, even though it seems like there may have been a panic either way. I mean, we're landing here. We're not getting off. So what were necessarily the uh, maybe the protocol in this situation? Did we tell passengers right away? Did we wait a little while? What was the what was that?
1: Well, everybody had to make their own decision. And of course, you know, it's not like we can have a conference call and talk about it. Um, I I thought a lot about my PA. And of course this was made over the North Atlantic before we uh, headed to Gander. And I talked to my lead flight attendant. I wanted, I wrote down what I was gonna say. I asked her if she felt comfortable with it. Because remember, we as pilots are locked behind a cockpit door. Mm -hmm. It's your flight attendants that you have to uh, respect because they're the ones who are going to have to deal with whatever happens with the passengers. So I opted to tell my passengers the truth. Mm -hmm. I didn't make up a mechanical problem. And the reason I didn't do that is because if I made up a mechanical problem saying, you know, we're going to land in Gander because of such and such. And then I have to undo the Mm -hmm. story I have told them. And in my mind, that makes them lose confidence in me as a captain. Sure. So, So I opted to, I said, ladies and gentlemen, this is Captain Bass. There's been a crisis in the United States. All of the U.S. airspace is closed. We'll be landing our airplane in Gander, Newfoundland. And when we get on the ground, I'll get back to you with more information. But remember, I don't know any more than what I've just told them. (laughs) I don't know any details. I don't know the airplanes have been hijacked. I don't know any of that. So when we got on the ground, you know, very few people had cell phones back then, Um, Uh, uh, crew members certainly didn't travel with their cell phones because it was like $100 a minute to use it in Europe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and (laughs) so only a few passengers had cells on the airplane, and we had no way to charge them. You know, today you can just plug in at every seat practically, Mm. but it was so different then. So um, once we got on the ground, the passengers were really learning more about what had happened than we as crew members knew because they were talking to their families and their workplaces and, and uh, they were giving us more details than what we knew on the ground.
0: That is awesome. I just want to say, before we get uh, any farther in, we have a comment here. Uh, thank you, Miss Bass. I will share your story with my seventh graders. Is there anything that you think they should take away from your experience as young people today?
1: Gosh. Well, I think, Uh, As far as the event and flying the airplane, the most important thing for me at that time was that I maintained the respect from my passengers. I could never, ever let them down. And and I have heard from my passengers uh, since 9-11, and I have saved every letter that was written to me. I've even had some of the passengers on future flights after the incident and, and they all said that. They said, we just had so much confidence in you. And I think that's the most important thing, regardless of what your job is, mm-hmm. is people have to respect you, and, and likewise, you have to respect them. And I think I've always played that role very well because of being a female pilot, being an oddity, walking into a cockpit where the guys have never flown with a female pilot. I, we, we were oddities, we just were. Mm-hmm. And I think most of the guys were intrigued and, and, and they treated me great, they really did. I don't have any horror stories from <laughs> my 32 years at American and isn't, isn't that nice?
0: It is. I'm sure there's very few people that could say they don't have any horror stories from their job. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that, that that's very awesome. That uh, that that respect and, and trust uh, is is a, a big key it's factor helpful. in in success. All right. So, how long were you in Gander? Five days five days yeah so
1: unannounced and we stayed five days
0: five days <laughs> well it's like it's like the plane that came to dinner <laughs> yes, yes. all right so uh i i did a lot of research on this after i had seen the musical come from away which talks about this story uh so in september eleventh, two 2011 which was the 10th anniversary um there was a uh uh a a writing crew. I guess they came to visit Gander uh, along with a lot of people that had been there on September 11th. They came back to visit uh, David Hine and Irene Sankoff, who actually from my research received an art grant from the Canadian government to create uh, a story based on the tales of uh, Gander, Newfoundland on September 11th. So I got to know, how did you get interviewed and featured in one of the best Broadway musicals I have ever seen? (laughs) I'm still
1: asking myself that question. (laughs) Well, it was actually Michael Rubinoff, who was the associate dean at Sheridan College in Toronto. And he knew the story of Gander. And he had pitched it to several playwrights. He thought it would be so great to write a musical. And, you know, the playwrights were like, a musical about 9-11? I don't think so. (laughs) Well, David and Irene had one other show under their belt, which was very successful in Canada. And they agreed and took that grant to stay there for a month to see if there were any stories. So I actually got a call from an Austrian film crew in the summer of 2011, asking me if I was going back to Gander for the 10th anniversary. And I said, well, no. I mean, I didn't know anything was going on. And they said, well, we are going. And they were actually filming Nick and Diane, you know, the couple who met and ultimately got married. Well, they filmed them. And they said, would you consider going? I said, well, let me talk to my husband. Of course, I always wanted to take my family there. So my husband said, oh, gosh, yes. He said, I'd love to go. So off we go unexpectedly unexpectedly, really, to gander on the 10th anniversary. And all the news teams were looking for a five-second soundbite for the evening news. And then uh, I was staying at the Comfort Inn, which is where I stayed on 9-11. I'm very good friends with the manager there, Karen Mills. And um, they said, would you be willing to do an interview with David and Irene, their playwrights? Well, John, I really didn't even know what playwrights were. And I said, well, <laughs> sure. Yeah, of course I will. Well, the interview lasted four hours.
0: Oh, my goodness. <laughs>
1: yes. and, and we had such a wonderful time on um, that trip. And then we went back to Texas. And really, I didn't even think about it again. And maybe David and Irene emailed me a couple of times over the next four years, uh, asking me a couple of mundane questions And then out of the blue in the summer of 2015, we got a call from the producers and they said, we want to invite you to the world premiere opening. I've come from away in La Jolla and we're like, oh my gosh, okay. So we get on an airplane, (laughs) and go to La Jolla. Now, now that you've seen the musical, I want you to try to imagine my husband, Tom, whose name Mm -hmm. you've heard in the show, and I sitting front row center watching this musical that we know nothing about, nothing. And when Jen Colella, the actress who played me at the time, rolled out her chair and picks up the Tom phone and says, Tom, I'm fine. My husband buried his head in his hands and I guess we missed 75% of the first show. So it's a good thing. I've seen it a, a few more times <laughs> since then. Um, what it made me realize, John, is that day was so much harder on my family. My kids mm-hmm. were like eight and 10. Mm-hmm. And uh, then it was on me. I had a job to do. I had an airplane to manage. I had a crew. I had passengers. And, and I had a huge responsibility to take care of them properly. My husband and kids knew that I was flying, but did not know where I was.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: it wasn't until that uh, the events happened at 746 in the morning Dallas time. And they did not hear from me until 430 that afternoon. So it was a very long, hard day for them. But that's how we saw the first show. And um uh, We've seen it many times since then.
0: <laughs> you, you know, one of the things that I, I loved about it. So I, I was introduced to it on the Tony Awards. Uh, oh. And I, I when they, they sang Welcome to the Rock. Yeah. And I was like, this, this story sounds fantastic. So I actually went and I bought a CD. I know, a CD. Who buys CDs anymore? <laughs> I know, I know. So I bought the CD. Yeah, I listened true. to it. I rather, I, this is actually the piano music right here for it oh, so i can play that yes um so just loved it so i uh, i used my tax return and i i bought some tickets to this show in toronto because it was uh. the quote you know from buffalo it's the closest uh, place to go and i told my girlfriend i said we're gonna go and um we're yes. gonna go see this musical and uh, just like you said earlier who, a musical about September 11th? Who wants to be depressed? I said, well, we went to go see Hunchback in Notre Dame and that was pretty <laughs> depressing. So, you know, so we, we go and we sit there and what I loved about this show is they could have taken this dense uh story of sadness and despair and they could have just dragged it on and made everybody miserable. But what they did was they brought humanity out and they brought the the everyday existence of people's lives and, and how they changed. And I thought that that musical not only takes every emotion that you have and put it on a roller coaster, but it is probably some of the best storytelling that, that is out there because it's so true. And it's it's fantastic.
1: Real people and real events. And when I, the way I describe it to people is, yes, there are a couple of moments of sadness. There would have to be for the story to be legitimate, but it never lets you dwell in those moments of sadness. It immediately moves to something funny or happy or, you know, the tears are gone and you're laughing so hard. I mean, it's, it's brilliantly written. It just is.
0: And another thing I love about it too, is there's no intermission. So you get in, you get the right. greatest story ever, and then you can go.
1: Oh, yes, now you want to know why there's no intermission? Please tell me. Because we didn't get an intermission.
0: That's deep. That is very, very cool. Yeah. That That is very cool. You know, and, and I, I, what I love about the characters, uh, you know, so uh, the, the writers took, uh, traits from different people's interviews and created these characters and i just absolutely love the opening when uh the police officer is talking <laughs> talking about i sit there on airport boulevard and and i love i just love these people i love them and 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 um Oh, I, I just love when they're uh, the ladies are on the plane and they're drinking and they said we're just gonna flash. Oh it, it, it was just yes, and that happened. They really did flash. <laughs> and, and that poor, poor woman that's working for the first day at the news station. <laughs>
1: yes. Can you believe um, it's true. It was her first day. I mean, that's what's so magnificent about the show is uh, the stories are true. I mean, they may have been altered a little bit, but they're basically true
0: stories. I, I I absolutely love it. And, you know, I look forward to seeing the show again. I think I've told you earlier, I've seen it twice. Uh, and I, I took a few friends to go see it when, we, when it came to Buffalo. And they actually drove to Toronto two weekends oh my- later to oh. see it again. Oh it was just so is- exciting. It's such a good story. So. Now, we talked about the musical. We've talked about September 11th. We've talked about your past. Um, and I, I noticed, because we are friends on Facebook, that you seem to take a lot of groups to go see the show. Uh, so you're almost like a, an amba- a brand ambassador, so to speak. Uh, yeah, that, that, that
1: I don't know that. how that happened, but it did. <laughs> it did. As a matter of fact, um, on March 10th, the show opened in Dallas. And we had 300 American Airlines pilots, flight attendants, and families with us at the show. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it played March the 11th, and then COVID shut everything down. So Mm -hmm. we did have a wonderful night. But um, I used to keep track of the people that we had taken to the show or went to the show on on my recommendation. And once I got to 1,500, I had to stop counting.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, Beverly, I got one more question from a commenter. One more question for me, and then we're gonna wrap this up because okay. I, I don't want to I don't want to take you away from your your busy schedule. Uh, but uh, I I wouldn't be able to sleep tonight if I didn't read my girlfriend's question that she submitted here. Uh, Is the song "Me in the Sky"? which uh, happens towards the end of the show, uh, a song that you put on your playlist that you listen to in your day-to-day life, like you have a song written about you and everything you went through, talk about relating to music. So when you heard that song for the first time, what was going through your mind?
1: Well, when I heard it the first time, I was absolutely shocked. I didn't know the song had been written, so I had never heard it. And, I mean, the fact that it chronicles my aviation career is just unimaginable. I don't even know how they wrote the song. Um, sadly, I don't listen to a lot of music. However, I did get, um, what, are, what are those things you have in your room that you tell it to turn on the TV? and?
0: Oh, uh, Alexa? Alexa. Or, uh- Yes.
1: And the other day I asked Alexa, I said, Alexa, can you play me in the sky? And when she started belting that out, I was like, you have got to be kidding me. This is amazing. (laughs) So yes, I love it. I actually prefer listening to the actresses singing it um, more than just listening to it in my everyday life. But I was pretty impressed that Alexa could find it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing what technology can do. Yes. All right. So Beverly, you have a book out, uh, me and the sky. It's a beautiful children's story. Um, I actually, uh, got this on Amazon last week, uh, just before we, uh, had our opportunity to speak. I read it. Uh, it is, it's great. It's, it talks a lot about, um, what you uh, have gone through in your day-to-day, uh, your, your aviation career, as we talked about earlier. It has beautiful illustrations by Joni Stone, who I uh, I think I told you earlier, I, I reached out to on uh, Instagram to just comment her on this awesome uh, imagery correct. that she has. Can you talk a little bit about uh, being a children's book author?
1: Well, I, I didn't set out to do that either. um <laughs> What happened is when the show opened on Broadway, which was uh, March 12, 2017, um, and before COVID, it was just starting its fourth year on Broadway, which is the longest running show at the Schoenfeld Theater in Broadway, which is a big deal. Um, some ladies from Random House went to see the show and they contacted the producers to see if they could get in touch with me which the producers did. And I met with Random House and they wanted to write my autobiography. And I said, no. And the reason for that is because there are already quite a few books about women airline pilots. And I didn't think that mine provided anything unique. So uh, they weren't willing to take no for an answer. And (laughs) a couple of meetings when they whittled it down to a children's book, I was like, yes, yes, I will do that because in all fairness, it would not be right for me to deprive any young person of realizing that they can do whatever they want to do. If they just persevere and set their mind to it, they can do anything. And that that was really the purpose of writing a children's book. And it was, the only book that I was willing to write.
0: (laughs) Well, it's it's very enjoyable. And I I tell everybody, uh, you should purchase it. It's available on Amazon and anywhere, uh, really, that books are sold. Um, It's definitely a great read. And it's awesome if you're an elementary school or middle school teacher, and you just want to uh, enlighten your students about Beverly's life and uh, her 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 uh, growth in her career. So, Beverly, I want to thank you so much for taking the time today to sit down and talk with me. This has been a, a very honorable uh, event, and I, I thank you so much for for your insight and uh, your candor in this um, this interview. And I, I hope I hope that it was an enjoyable experience.
1: <laughs> oh, it certainly was. And John, I thank you. I really do. Thank you for having me on.
0: Great. Well, I will be with you in one second, Beverly. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, today, my guest was Captain Beverly Bass. uh, And you can read more about her in the book, Me in the Sky, uh, which is available, like I said, wherever books are sold. You can also hear more about her story in the Broadway musical, Come From Away. And as soon as Broadway is back, and running or Toronto is back and running or the tour is back up and running. Please buy your tickets to go see this heartfelt story of humanity. You will not not regret going to see this musical. Like I said, I've seen it twice and I look forward to seeing it again. Uh, My name is John Sebleski and this is Why Bother. Uh, Please like and subscribe to us on Facebook and on YouTube. We're also available on Apple Podcasts. This has been another fun episode and I look forward to seeing you again on Why Bother.